Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Majority Investor Circle podcast, a podcast for everyday new majority investors looking to invest in founders who look like them. At the New Majority, we scan the top equity and debt crowdfunding platforms for new majority founders, founders who identify as women, people of color, or LGBTQ. Every founder we feature is building a company with a for-profit business model that's impact built in as measured by the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And of course, they raise from you via equity or debt crowdfunding. Our mission is to close the racial and gender wealth gap through entrepreneurship and investing. With this podcast, we hope to give you an understanding of who you're trusting your money with and how these founders aim to use your funds to have a broader impact on society while building upside. Welcome to today's episode of the New Majority Investor Circle podcast. Today, we are chatting with Maryam Nusrat, founder and CEO of Breshna.io, which offers users the ability to quickly create their own games without having to write a single line of code. Think Canva for games. At its core, the game-making platform is on a mission to democratize the access to the process of creating video games and empowering hundreds of millions of storytellers. The term Breshna translates to lightning in Pashto, reflecting the platform's rapid nature. Literally, you can create games like lightning. Since their launch in January 2023, Breshna has over 170,000 registered game makers who have created over 150,000 video games. And people aren't just creating their own games, folks are playing them. Over 320,000 completed gameplays with over 4 million unique clicks all since January of 2023. At Breshna, they're crafting a realm where individuals of all backgrounds can share their narratives through the medium of video games. Their product lineup consists of three products. Breshna.io, which is a free, user-friendly platform designed to swiftly produce personalized video games without the need for coding or design experience. Creations are ready in just under 15 minutes in any language, and again, all at no cost. The second product, which is coming, is Breshna Blitz, soon to be released AI-powered tool that transforms simple text prompts into mini video games. So think ChatGPT for video games. And lastly, Breshnaverse, which is coming this year, provides users with a metaverse to showcase and monetize their games through personalized carnival stands. So now that you've created a bunch of video games, right, this is where you would be able to show those video games and then perhaps charge other users who want to play or use your game. So as of this recording on February 6th, Breshna is still open for investment on Republic, with just under 50,000 raised from 74 investors. These everyday investors have joined Paris Hilton, Randy Zuckerberg, and a handful of other venture capital firms who participated in Breshna's 2.5 million seed round last year. Miriam, we are very excited to have featured you and Breshna for the first New Majority Featured Founder Write-Up of 2024. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about Breshna's new launches, all the potential growth directions, because it seems like there's quite a few, your growth goals and big vision. So thank you again for joining us today and welcome to the New Majority Investor Circle podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Mackenzie. It's such a joy to be talking to you. And I'm so super, super excited to share our stories. Thank you for having me. Of course. 
All right, so Breshna is this global platform, right? Kind of really the first of its kind to offer a code-free and inclusive game creating experience. So as of the time of this recording, February 6th, Breshna is still open for investment on Republic for another 10 days. Can you give a 30 second pitch to specifically the everyday investor? Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll give you like a very quick version. So I'm Mariam Nusrat. I'm the founder and CEO of Breshna.io. And Breshna transforms how video games are created. So with no code at zero cost and at lightning speed. So kind of think of it almost like the Canva for gaming. So if there's a math teacher that wants to make like a Super Mario-like game where you the students are catching even numbers and dodging odd numbers, you can do that on Breshna without any coding or design skills. We've only been incorporated for a little over two years. We've made mad progress. 175,000 registered game makers, $2.5 million raised from investors like Paris Hilton and Randy Zuckerberg. And we're just getting started. So we're on a journey to empowering the next 100 million people so they can tell their stories through video games. And you can join our journey through Republic by investing as little as $100. So I hope you're game. I didn't time it, but I felt like that was concise. So. I appreciate I think that. I was 45. It's so funny because I did the 60 second elevator pitch show. So I've, I know exactly what 60 seconds looks like. So I'm like, yeah, that wasn't exactly 30, but that was probably 45. <laughs> <laughs> and so before starting Freshna, right, you have a very impressive academic background. Just kind of let's roll it back, you know, five, 10 years here. Um, you also worked at the World Bank. You mentioned you got your master's at GW, which was actually your second master's, and that you came up with this idea, you know, the Canva for Games. Was that the original idea as part of the Clinton Global Initiative, or has it evolved? So tell us a little bit more about the original idea, how it's evolved, and kind of how the, the vision has expanded. Yeah, it's so crazy, McKinsey, because if you look at my, like, I mean, academic career and my professional career, Nowhere on the horizon is like tech entrepreneur of a gaming platform like that. That does not uh, math out anywhere. Right. And everything. I mean, I'm an economist by academic training. I spent 15 years working at the World Bank in education policy. And then while I was working at the World Bank and pursuing my second master's degree, it's like I had so much time on my hands. I realized that, I mean, it was like basically when, you, when you're working at the bank, I mean, you work with all of these behavior change projects, right? So it's like whether it's education or health or financial literacy or climate action, you're like, hey, all of these school interventions, all of this money going into, into these projects and that last mile problem of behavior change, right? Because it's like, okay, if you're going to be like, hey, um, here, I mean, I'll give a very real example, like often with projects, for reproductive health projects, they'll distribute condoms and these get used as balloon animals, like literally, or they'll distribute things like mosquito nets that turn into whales for like weddings and like goalposts for football, right? And everything. So it's like, I mean, there's all of these intervention, like actually in India, a lot of toilet seats were, were distributed for open defecation is such a problem. And they ended up as, as decoration pots, like literally as decoration pieces, or even some people use them to put little like worship, um, like their idols in it, because, hey, I mean, it, it does protect its ceramic <laughs> little bowl. Like, I mean, if you think about it, so it's like, it's this idea that, um, the last mile problem of behavior change often is like, if you're like, here's a brochure, here's a workshop, go change your behavior. 
you know, not the best way to to inspire behavior change. And I grew up playing games like SimCity, where I was learning about urban planning without even knowing I was learning about urban planning. So I think when I was doing my second master's degree, this this idea of leveraging video games for behavior change. Actually, I mean, there's a there's almost like a version zero of this, which was actually leveraging video games to teach international development practitioners. So I was sitting in an, in an econ class at GW and the teacher and, the, and another fellow student were having a back and forth between, is it energy or is it education that's gonna change Kenya? And they were like, oh, it's, it's actually education policy. And the teacher's like, no, it's energy policy. And I was like, how cool would it be if we had a simulative game where we could do one and then do the counterfactual and see the other one and just go back in time, right? I was like, that would be a really cool game for policymakers. That's kind of, that was like day zero of this idea of leveraging video games to teach policymakers. And then I realized that more than policymakers, there's this opportunity to actually teach behavior change. And that kind of started with that, with, with a student project where we applied to the Clinton Global Initiative University. Then it was like a whole thing. I got together with my brother. We got some developers from Pakistan. One of the first video games we made was menstrual health. So it was a period game where you're catching pads with a pair of undies <laughs> and you're literally busting menstrual myths. <laughs> it was like a low cost mobile game. And we realized there was just so much power in these hyper casual games. So that was actually the birth of, of Grid, which was leveraging video games for behavior change. But then we kind of evolved and realized that there was a huge demand, but a cost time and skills barriers to making these games. And that's what Brashna solves. So it's like we we realized the use from Grid. And then we were like, hey, but there's still these barriers on making these games. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, what if we break those barriers? And that was Brashna. Oh my God. Okay. I have so many, I have so many threads I want to pull out of that. Um, so I'm gonna table a bunch of them and we'll come back to it. But yeah, I mean, you were at the World Bank, I feel like economist training. Um, you've talked about this before about kind of your journey to being this full-time founder right, of a tech company that is coding, but no coding, um, and you're non-technical. So can you share a little bit more about that founder journey? When did you know, hey, this isn't just a student project, like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work with my brother, I'm gonna build out um, a team within Pakistan, like, when did you make this journey to go all in on, on Brashna? When did you know? Yeah, because I feel like there's almost three phases of this this journey, right? There's the student project phase, then there's the gaming studio, us as a service provider phase, and then there's the venture-backed tech startup phase, right, and everything. So it's almost like, you know, so the student project, again, it was while I was at GW, all of that. I think something that's really interesting that I feel like... Um, a lot of these programs, so the Clinton Global Initiative, um, you know, university, it's a program where they invite students from all over the, uh, all over the world, actually, universities, and they come together and they make a commitment to action. And I was like, my commitment to action is to change the world with video games, right? And everything. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And then they actually track your progress for a whole year. And the year after that, out of the 700, around five students are invited to present their progress on stage with President Clinton. And that to me, so like they tracked our progress and that's kind of the time we made a couple of video games and we really started like, you know, like not just as a, oh, we went to CGIU and then it's done. I really kind of like continue to build it and like 
you know, tapped onto my brother and got some developers and we just like started to really work on this idea. So we made enough progress where the next year we presented on stage with President Clinton. And I think there was something so spectacular about that moment. And I think this is what a lot of first time founders need sometimes is that validation at a certain level, which then makes everyone else take you seriously. So that just ended up being this something, this moment, um, you know, there's, there's these moments in your entrepreneurial journey. And that was definitely one of those first moments that it was like, okay, this might be something bigger. And that's kind of where we ended up like winning a bunch of competitions. We like got money, we incorporated the organization, you know, it's like, it just like the wheels start mm -hmm. spinning and everything. Right. So, so then we went into the service based, like we are a gaming studio. We make games for change games for, mm -hmm. you know, social impact. And we worked with USAID, Georgetown, Georgetown University, actually, George Washington, all of these, UNICEF and all of those. And we started creating these video games. And then 2020 COVID hit. And when mm -hmm. COVID hit, we realized that there's this huge demand for these video games. But again, there's a cost time and skills barriers. If we're going to be the ones making games, we can't make these games fast enough. So I was a huge, I'm a huge, huge user of Canva. And I was like, where's the Canva for video games? And that kind of became, and it's really interesting, McKinsey, because often with entrepreneurs that go from service space to platform, in a way, it's almost like you're putting yourself out of business. Because if mm -hmm. I'm empowering my user to make their own video games, then I'm killing my service-based business model. Because technically, then they don't have to come to me for me to make the game for them because I've just empowered them to make that game. So it's actually the mental switch is really difficult to be like, I am no longer a service provider. I am now a tech entrepreneur of this scalable platform and that's when i did a lot of research thanks to covid hours on twitter on like venture capital angels how does this model what do they what do vcs back and that was when i became a, a tech entrepreneur so i think it's a it's a whole journey but 2021 march of 2021 is when we started building prashna as a tech startup venture back studio that I, I love how you have connected those dots, which I know that probably when you were in the moment, it was not like, of course, this is the next step. And it sounds so logical and linear in retrospect. Um, but it's, it's such a nice way of actually, like you said, phrasing kind of putting yourself out of business, but then from an impact perspective, right? You, you can't have the impact on the one by one by one. And you really want to be able to scale and you really want to put yourself out of business. So that your end users or the beneficiaries are the ones who are designing the games that they want to see, right? Exactly. Like we went from 11 games in the studio to now 150,000 video games that have been made on Breshna. That yeah, we would have needed a lot more Merriams to do exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. A lot more gaming studios. <laughs> so, okay. So talk to us a little bit about the product. So we have, you know, three different products, right? Um, well, three different products that are coming. And I feel like there's a lot of target audiences. You have an education background. You've mentioned, you know, math, jumping over evens and odds, but then also uh, menstrual pads. Um, so several target audiences for pick a customer. What's kind of their typical experience? How do they get into Freshna? And then how do you kind of see them going through the three products that you've got? I love that. So McKinsey, right now, and this is where Breshna started, it's the no-code game maker. So that's the Canva-like 
um, editor interface. That's the one that's live. You can go on there. You pick a template. So let's take the teacher example, right? So I'm a math teacher. I want to make a Super Mario kind of run and catch game. So I go on there. There's a template that literally has a run array template. You pick that up. I pick my own. I'm like, oh, I want a unicorn running through space making and I'm gonna like have them like, you know, collect. So I put in all the even numbers and I they can dodge all the odd numbers or I'm like, you know, catch the flags of countries in Asia, dodge everything else, catch the periodic table elements, dodge everything else, whatever, right? Like whatever, whatever I'm teaching. So my avatar, my background, my collectibles, my non-collectibles, everything is customizable. I can also make this game in any language. So the teacher can be like, hey, so there's teachers in Saudi that are making, our Saudi became our third largest country that are making Arabic video games for science and math learning organically. Like we did not do any any marketing. We had no presence in Saudi. Out of the blue, these teachers started using uh, Brashna to make Arabic video games. So that's the teacher. So now she makes the game. Once she publishes the game, it's a simple URL link. So it's kind of like a YouTube video. This game goes wherever she wants to take it. It's on a WhatsApp group. She can send it to her students. She can put it on her website. She can put it on our blog, wherever she wants to take it. She can embed it in her own app, like wherever, right? And there's no login needed, no download needed to play the game. So it's a very light experience. And, and our users love that, love that super simple, lightning fast experience of like really simple. I made my game, now I can share it. However, once we built Prashna, one of the user feedbacks we got was, hey, actually I've made 10 games on Prashna, not just this one game. And I would love an opportunity, like one place where I could showcase all of these games and then also monetize them, right? Like, I mean, why? Like, sure, I can send one link at a time and some teachers have made the made a website where they have all of their games, but that's the efforts on them, right? So they were like, what can we mm -hmm. do? And we were like, okay, what is one place where you can go and play people's games? Like almost like a vendor, like this game maker becomes a vendor. And we were like, what if we made a virtual carnival? Like literally like everyone could have their own carnival stand. And then on those stands, like if you had made five games, five math games on Brashnam, then this teacher can like invite her students to this virtual world, which is now 3D, very beautiful. So it's simple 2D games and a beautiful immersive 3D virtual carnival. And then you can display these games. But then you can also monetize these games. So you can be like, hey, the first math games for free, but then this other game's like really advanced. It has 10 levels, all of this effort I've put into it. If you want to play that game, you're going to pay a dollar. And then we take a 35% share of that. So that's Brashnaverse. That is that metaverse Web3 enabled you know, blockchain currency, very immersive, showcasing and monetizing. So you create your game on Breshna and then you showcase it and monetize it in the Breshnaverse. So that's the metaverse. And then obviously AI hit everyone, you know, and then there was like, like no code, AI was eating no code for breakfast and everything. So it was like, okay, you know what? There is a huge opportunity where lightning fast, right now people are making games in 15 minutes, but can we allow people to make these games in five seconds? So now Breshna Blitz, which is the last project product, is actually you would be able to write it now. Like rather than going into the editor, you can literally say, make me a run and catch game where a unicorn is running through space, catching even numbers and dodging odd numbers. You generate and the whole game gets generated for you. So that's the AI powered text to game engine. So that's Breshna Blitz. So Breshna, make a game. Breshna Blitz also make a game, but faster. So maybe you want to make the first game on Breshna Blitz, then take it to Breshna to customize it, and then take it to the Breshnaverse to showcase and monetize. Okay. And do you ever see that Breshna Blitz will kind of cannibalize the the 
Breshna verse? Yeah, so I feel like Breshna Blitz and Breshna are both on the create side. Breshna verse is on the showcase and monetize, right? So Breshna, I feel like what's probably going to happen is we'll see a lot of people making games on Breshna Blitz and then taking them to Breshna to tweak them. Right. So the one problem with like, for instance, even chat GPT is like you made this image, but I wish this image like I wish I could like you misspell this one word or something. And that's when you <laughs> then take the image to Canva and then you're like, you know, mm -hmm. editing it and everything. So I feel like Breshna becomes the Canva for Breshna Blitz, right? Like you've made the first game, but you want to make tweaks to it. That's where you take it to Breshna. And then once you finalize your game, then you take it to the virtual carnival to showcase it and monetize it. Breshna is the only product that's live right now. Breshnaverse launches in April and then Breshna Blitz launches in quarter two. Okay, so for all the educators out there who are listening, this is, you literally can go and make your video game for math, history, science, anything today. And then stay tuned for the rest. Exactly, exactly. So anyone, and right now games are free to make. They can be made in less than 15 minutes, lightning speed, Breshna speed. And they can um, they can be created without any coding or design skills. And not just teachers. It's like, that's the interesting part. It's like, we have teachers, we have social impact organizations, content creators, all kinds of games being made in Breshna. So it's fun. Okay. Do you have a running board of like top favorite games that have been created that you've played? And if so, what is your favorite one? So crazy you asked that, McKinsey, because we actually just launched the library because one of the things was like, you know, like, how are you going to discover? Because we have 150,000 video games. It's all this content we're sitting on. So we've really been doing all this effort of like curating, categorizing, tagging those games. And now we just launched the library this week on like where you can be like, I want to see all the education math games. I want to see all the entertainment games and stuff like that. One of the most interesting use cases of Breshna has actually been a prom proposal game. So someone actually made a prom proposal in a game, which was adorable. Um, I hope I, they said yes. I hope so too. I I I like I, I really hope she said yes. But that was a really cute game. And my own favorite game, it's very selfishly, is actually a Breshna marketing game. So there's a cat that's running and catching all of the features of Breshna. So it's like, it's no code, it's lightning fast, it's free to use, it's like stuff like that. So it's like, it's actually a marketing game for Breshna. Got it. And that is one of the uh, target audiences, right? The small business owners as well. Exactly. So it's a little bit like, I mean, if you're building for everyone, you're building for no one. So our own focus has been mostly ed tech and, and a couple of B2B partnerships. But we don't close the door on like anyone else being able to use Breshna. So it's been like, I mean, I feel like 60% of it is EdTech, uh, where our mm -hmm. marketing efforts are. But yeah. I mean, we support all kinds of creators on Breshna. That's amazing. And yeah, that was one of my questions is there are so many options and opportunities here. So you really do have to narrow and then, you know, kind of land and expand. Exactly. So you are based in DC, correct? Yes. Okay. And your development team is in Pakistan. Yes. And so I've heard you say many times that you are a female led capital efficient team. So right. tell us more about how you really began building the global team. I know that your brother was involved. Obviously, your roots are involved. But tell us a little bit more about how that came about. Um, why I would say it's a differentiator or like kind of a value add for Breshna. Um, I imagine there must be a lot of pros and cons to so maybe highlight a few of each. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like Mackenzie, one of the things with with startup founders, as you can imagine, is like, 
you get seed funding, right? And everything. And then you're, it's like the timer goes off, right? And everything. And then you you're on this clock to like find product market fit. And it's like this holy grail that everyone's like chasing. It's like product market fit. What does it look like and everything? So I think for us, what was really interesting was, again, we're coming at it from the gaming studio days, right? So the gaming studios, everyone, it was like a side gig for everyone, right? So, I mean, the way it would work is like everyone at the end, I mean, if we would get a project, we just had this pool of freelance developers that we had worked with over the years. Like my brother had identified them and we would be like, oh, remember that person that we worked on that game with? Or remember that other person that we worked on that game? So slowly as we were building these games, we also ended up building a pool of developers that we trusted, that we'd worked with, that we had relationships with. And that like, you know, we were able to quality assure and like vet throughout the process and everything. And when we started Brashnam, we were like, guys, like this is now it's like go time. So like we literally cherry picked a few of them and we were like, all right, you know what? Like this is the team that we're going to have and you're going to work full time now on this platform rather than just these games and everything. So I think the huge opportunity there, one is obviously there's a huge cost benefit, right? For a team of 25, our burn is less than $40,000. That is unheard of, like on the entrepreneur elevator picture, when I told this to Mark Randolph, who's the Netflix founder, like if you watch it on TV, he literally fell out of his chair. He's like, there, like, how is this burn? Like, that is a wild burn. Like, we will be profitable with 600K of ARR. Like, we're expecting profitability by the end of this year. Like, we could not raise a single dime of venture capital and be perfectly fine, right? And everything like that's kind of the sustainability of the model here. And that effectiveness, that cost effectiveness gives us so much room to fail and iterate, right? Because one thing that people don't talk about is the hypotheses that you start with on day one is nothing. Like all of that tweaking that you're doing, it's expensive. It's development. Like you're like, oh, let me mm -hmm. try this feature and then let me try this thing and then let me try this thing and this thing's fitting, this thing isn't fitting. So the fact that we're able to work on three products at the exact same time, right? And everything, like there's an AI platform, there's a whole Web3 metaverse, and there's a no-code game maker platform. Each of these is such a huge undertaking, but we're able to do all three. It's because of that cost efficiency and that high quality and relationships that we've had over the past. So I think that's a huge mode for us. Um, and let's just underline that one. That's, that's absolutely massive. And so I how big is the team right now? 25, so 20 developers and designers working full time every single day, managed by my brother on the ground. And that I think the, you know, it doesn't matter that I'm in DC. It's like they have the day-to-day -day supervision. He's based out of Islamabad every single day. So one of the founders being on ground, that's where I'm able to then dodge all of the quality, uh, you know, and supervision challenges that a lot of founders face when they're working with offshore teams, right? And everything, because they're like, well, I found this team that's like, you know, I mean, in a different time zone. And then like, there's a language barrier, there's this, there's that. I mean, for us, it's none of that because we're just able to have the the business development and the network of the of the West with the cost efficiency and the and the quality that comes with offshore offshore talent. That's amazing. And I would say, I mean, I think that, I, you know, some will view maybe being an immigrant, um, being a woman, woman of color as a negative. Obviously, we're on the new majority podcast. We <laughs> consider that a huge value add. And I think that this is a great example of where, like, 
these things are coming together to give you a, like you said, a massive moat, but also a huge advantage. And that was 40,000 a month, a month, 40,000 a month. And that includes everyone that includes the US everyone like the Pakistan team is like probably half of that. It's like it's wild. We got to keep going, but my mind is being blown right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. We're going to shift into a little bit about fundraising then, um, because I do think that that's something that you personally have just excelled at. um, And as you said, you kind of ticked off all the reasons why people would perhaps not invest in you or why you wouldn't have been the first choice. And so you have had amazing fundraising success and, and pulled together some Great angel investors. This is the second equity crowdfunding campaign. And the first one was wildly successful as well. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, when you made that switch from uh, a gaming studio to something that you were like, I think I'm going to need a little bit of money to get this rolling. Talk about kind of what your fundraising approach was, how much time you spend on fundraising, and then where it's gotten you today. And I want to have you highlight your runway, because I think that's fantastic I love that question McKinsey I think like fundraising you know I feel like one of the founders like every founder if you're like what's your biggest challenge they're like funds like you know I don't have money give me money and everything and I think like one there was that mental shift that needed to happen right is like going from fund me because like because I'm building it because it's really cool it because what I'm building is really cool because right? I'm going to the moon and it's going to be a billion dollar multi-billion dollar company <laughs> exactly so I think even understanding like actually this is embarrassing but but just shows the transition one of the first pitch decks I made was actually for the service-based studio I was like well like you know I make games you can give me money and then I will make games and then we'll both make money and it was like Yes, but where is the scale, right? And everything. And I think it was like actually a couple of calls in when I was like, something, something is broken. Like something isn't working because the way I used to like get money, this is this is a different ball game. And that's when I really immersed myself in this. What what is venture backable? Like what does that even mean, right? How do you define venture backable? What is this thing where they say forty x returns? Like. How are they expecting? And I think that is so important for founders to do is to put on the investor hat because we have our hearts and our products. So we're like, why would why would you not invest in this? Like 100%, like why would you not? And it's like, I think it's more like, why would they? And, and that's where when you start thinking that question of like, they they have all this deal flow that's coming at them. And again, as a female non-tech, first time DC based immigrant non Ivy League school founder with no warm introductions. I am definitely not on the top of that Rolodex that they're looking for deal flow, right? And everything. So like, what am I even doing? But this is where I feel like there are every founder. And this is what I like, you know, the DC startup week with the story I was trying to tell is every founder has the odds stacked against them. But then also there's it's almost like a video game, right? Like you have the bosses that you're like, I mean, getting challenged with. But then there's these little bonus stages or these little opportunities that come along the way. And those for me, I think was the time of COVID. So I, every single investor, so I've raised a total of $2.5 million um, from investors, including Paris Hilton, Randy Zuckerberg, Bill Ackman's family office, Web2, Web3 VCs. Every single investor on my cap table can be traced back to a cold outreach. Like, so not first degree, but 
at some point, like, you know, so maybe someone made a connection to someone later, but that first someone was always a cold outreach. So there is no friend that I had. There is no one in my network that was like, hey, let me introduce you to a VC. Most people in my in my network don't know what a VC is, right? So I think that that idea of what was happening on Twitter in 2021 was magic was happening on Twitter because VCs had literally put their Calendly links in their profiles looking for deal flow, right? And VCs started to look so different and VCs were looking at so many different approaches. So my entire thing became building in public. I was just out there like literally putting my things to do list every single day with this idea of someone's going to steal your idea. No one's stealing your idea. Ideas are plenty. No one can steal your execution. That's that's the thing that people can't steal, right? So I think for me, it was, here is what I'm doing every single day. I would literally go and tweet my things to do list. I'd be like, today I'm working on the website and then the logo and this is what I'm going to do. I'm like, whatever, man. I'm just like, I'm just going to, it's a, it's a way of accountability and maybe I build community. I was building in public without knowing what building in public was. And I think that I got so many no's, McKinsey, and I'm going to start wrapping the story up, but I got so many no's, so many no's, but I realized no's are actually not now's. Because what I would ask them was simply, can I add you to my mailing list? That's all I need. I just need your email. Can I add you? I was sending investor updates when I had no investors. I was just like, today, uh, dear investors, this is what I'm doing and everything. And it was every single month, I would just keep updating them. And what I realized was investors invest in lines, not dots. And as they saw that momentum, they're like, don't know what this girl's up to, but She's just still at it, right? And everything. And that is how the dominoes start to fall. And that's how people join the cap table and then they make another introduction and another and another. And then you end up with people like Paris Hilton, like Randy Zuckerberg. And that's when then the doors open. And then instead of chasing yeses, you're then saying noes. Then you have to be selective. <laughs> so, so it was an interesting journey. Um, that's when the table slipped and that's always nice to to feel a little bit that power dynamic and then you kind of settle back in right let's be (laughs) humble Um, I I love that and I think there's so many so many things that you said there Um, but specifically thinking about how uh, you know the no's are really kind of not now's and we're investing in lines rather than kind of you know little data points and I think that that goes back to the beginning of what you had said for the uh, Clinton Global Initiative, right? Like after a year, let's see who's made the progress and let's let's hear about it. And I think that that's something that has really kind of carried through the brushness story. A hundred percent. I think when you're zoomed in, it seems so hard. You seem like you're doing nothing. But as long as you're showing up every single day with some purpose and that passion, that fire in your belly, once you zoom out, you're like, whoa, like, what is this progress? I, I feel like it. you just have one job is show up every single day. <laughs> I'm going to write down my sticky note for myself. So that's my one job here. <laughs> yeah, one job. <laughs> and so it, in, in addition to raising, you know, over to 2.5 million, right, from these angel investors of really notable names and, and various VC funds, I think it's also really notable that you did open up Freshna as an investment opportunity through equity crowdfunding. So talk a little bit about why you did that the first time um, and then why you did it again for the current campaign that's open. 
Yeah, so the first time, literally, McKinsey, I mean, I was actually looking at our first campaign. We were like four months old, right? And everything. And it's like super <laughs> early. And the first time it really was about saying, hey, you know, we have friends and family. No one is an accredited investor. I don't have a friends and family round. I don't have people that can like write checks or something. But, you know, I do know people that can, they'll be able to put in $100. And I do have people that believe in my passion that have watched me do this gaming studio thing for so many years. So why not open around and just kind of see where it goes and suss it out. And I think um, that time we were able to get, I mean, it wasn't a huge amount of money compared to our seed round. We were able to get $200,000 and we actually shut, shut it down early because we started getting a higher valuation on the Reg D side. So Rec CF, we were doing Rec CF and it was open and we had raised around $200,000, but it was at a at a lower valuation. And all of a sudden they were like investors that wanted to come in and they were like, you know what, I'll top it up. But you have to close, obviously you can't have two terms, like, you know, I mean, two equities um, yeah. two in the same market and everything. So we shut that down, but we got 327 people. And McKinsey, it's wild. So we have 29 people on the Reg D side and 327 people that came through Republic. And I can tell you, there are some people who've written a $100 check that are more useful, more active, and that have made more connections for us than some of our largest um, investors. Not every investor, like the value add of an investor, sure, capital is definitely one of them, but that's only one aspect. The social capital, the the the, the knowledge they can share and all of that could be such a game changer and i think that having watched that having seen that the first time we were like hey you know what we're about to raise a series a there is such a thing as being too big for ecf i feel like at some point especially larger investors start to view ecf even this time when we opened this round it was like why are you doing that you have 27 months of runway you're raising an eight million dollar series a you have three million dollars in commitments like what is this like how do you justify it but for me, again, it was our user, all these new users that joined since then, all these new supporters, these new partners, they wanted to own a slice of Breshna. And, and I just cannot sleep at night knowing that when I'm going to have my big yacht and I'm going to have all of the investors on their like big boats, I want at least to know that I gave my, my community an opportunity to share in that upside. So that was the motivation behind the second one. I mean, I am so here for making a global impact and making your millions on the way, right? If you're solving some of the big society problems, like, yeah, you should get paid for that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> because I mean, again, Canva currently is valued at $40 billion. I mean, if this is going to be the next Canva for gaming, if this is going to be the next TikTok for video games, how can I possibly not make those people that were part of the earliest supporters that believe in it when it's not I mean, the day it's a TikTok for video games, of course, I mean, everyone's like, hey, yeah, you. But I mean, it's this time that's that's really the time of early supporters. And I feel like ECF is a really cool way of giving them that skin in the game. That and also it's, it's a little bit about rewarding your early users for sure. But also I would say even at this early stage, you've had amazing traction. You've got thousands of people on there, but it's also about kind of continuing to build that moat, right? So yes, they love you, they love the product, they love the company, but now they're invested in the company and then they're going to go tell their friends. And obviously we're fans of equity crowdfunding over here at the New Majority, um, but I absolutely see that value. 
And I do think that uh, there's a lot of uh, value add that can come that's not just the capital, whether that is those warm introductions, new users, partnerships, um, anything. Is there, do you have one story uh, or one particular moment that really stands out where um, an investor who maybe didn't write the biggest check size, and I'm specifically thinking about the everyday investors, where they brought something that added so much more value that that has that changed the trajectory of where where Brushnet is going today. Yeah, and I think um, you know one thing I've come to realize, McKinsey, is like I mean there is no one investor, one client, one. Um, you know, I mean, it's like, and actually that's, that's something that's important for, for founders to know that there's no one make or break thing, but there are like, I mean, those big, like, you know, transformative where the marginal value add is so big. So I actually think, um, there, there's an investor that comes to mind and he, I mean, again, he found us on Republic and I think his check size was relatively small, like very retail and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, and he to date on his Instagram, his display picture is the avatar that we made for him from after the Republic as the reward, which was like, you know, here's your Brashna avatar. Every single post, every single time we write anything, he will repost it, he will like it, he will provide a platform. And then he makes connections. So one of our like best legal lawyers has actually come from one of his connections and everything. And then now with the second um, equity crowdfunding, like he's just on top of it right he's like let me share it with my with my community let me get this out there and everything and i think that's exactly what you want that kind of ownership of you know what like this is these are the people i supported like two years ago and look at them and they're still at it and this is a moment of pride for me and like you know it's like i think that um cumulative impact is just Mm -hmm. so encouraging and i think founders um i i feel like this is one of our we're hungry for validation it's it's such a Hey, you know what? Because we we're trained to feed on metrics, right? Like, and 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 we're like we're just like we have to get that external. Are are we okay? Are we okay? Because it's it's such an it's such, it's such an unstable, you know. I mean, it's such an uncertain journey, and I feel like investors don't realize the power of that one. Hey, good job that that can come your way and everything. So I really do believe. I mean, it sometimes it's just that it's like saying. Hey, I'm proud of you. I love what you're doing. I love being a part of it, and I'm going to talk about it. I think that in itself can be so so meaningful. I absolutely save all of the positive feedback that I get. I probably take the negative feedback a bit more to heart, but I save all the positive feedback because that's the things that keep you going. That make sure that you continue to show up every day. Exactly, because there will be so many, so many, so much feedback, so much noise. I mean, some good feedback, but some just noise. Like some, I mean, people just out there are not nice people, right? And everything. So, so you might get kicked down many, many, many times, and that's where you like, you know, really hold on to those moments of positive feedback. So, I completely agree. So, I want to think about in those moments, maybe of when, when we're not at our highest, right? Um, has there been? You can answer this question either way. Has there been any advice that you've ever been given that has really resonated that uh, kind of helped you on this journey or conversely in having built your experience and successfully raised and uh, you guys have such an impressive runway and free products and like coming out you know, this year. What is the advice that you might give to other women entrepreneurs either from Pakistan, the diaspora or just women entrepreneurs of color? 
so I think on the advice side, right, it's like, um, I feel like that um, it's very cliche, but I have these three P's that I'm just like, I always remind myself where I'm like passion, purpose, perseverance, right? It's like, it's just like, as long as what you, what you're building, you feel passionate about it. Like you want to like scream it out from the rooftops. You're excited about it. You're like, you, but you don't understand, but this is so exciting, but like, check this out, right? And everything like that kind of like, ah, like that level of passion. And then I think purpose, right? Because I mean, if it's passion, that's, that's um, unleashed, that's not disciplined. I feel like it goes in all kinds of direction and you do want it, you, you have to learn to hone it. And then perseverance is once you've honed it, then you need to show up every single day, right? And everything. So I just keep reminding myself because as founders, there's going to be so many shiny things on the horizon and you really have to be very disciplined and there will be good good days and bad days. You just really have to be gracious with yourself and be like, that's okay. I'm still going to show up today and maybe I will not conquer my things to-do list, but maybe I will do one thing that's going to help that that kind of narrows down on my North Star. I just wrote that down. And I think, you know, I think Russian is going to work out here, but I think the backup is founder therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, Founder know, therapy and motivational speaking. You've got it, Miriam. <laughs> yeah. Part of our investment thesis and criteria for selecting new majority founders to feature is, of course, a for-profit company that we believe will have a strong financial return for investors. But we're also looking for a company that has impact built into that business model. Ecolytics is a great example. They're building a single platform for sustainability services. Their automated tool saves their customers time and money in measuring, improving, and showcasing your impact, something we obviously care about here at The New Majority. And this isn't just for show. Ecolytics helps their customers attain B Corps certification and track and then maximize the ROI of sustainability efforts. So if you're looking to become a B Corps certified company, you're in luck. Ecolytics is offering an exclusive discount for the new majority listeners. For their first year subscription, mention the new majority and receive a 15% discount. To get started, go to the Ecolytics website, www.ecolytics.io. And now back to our conversation with Miriam. I There's so many more directions that we could go. Um, but the final question here is really, what are the biggest hurdles that you see within this next year, two years that you have to overcome to become that multi-billion dollar impactful gaming company? I love that. I think McKinsey, you know, I mean, the entire purpose of the Second Republic uh, campaign, we actually haven't like, you know, put money into marketing it or something. We've actually been very selective because the entire purpose of this one was to open the cap table for strategic partners, right? And then when you say strategic, it's like, oh, like, I mean, is this going to be like, you know, do I have to be PNG? And that's not what it is. But it's like, it is something where I feel like, ask yourself that question is, do I believe that video games are a universal language and that there is a power in that language to be unleashed for purposes beyond entertainment. Can I can I imagine a world where just like TikTok, Canva did for design, TikTok did for video, people around the world are making video games, not just games where you see the New York City skyline and the yellow cab and that's the games that we all see, but games that that reflect, there's 1 billion video game players around the world only 200,000 people making games. How is that fair, right? How are 200,000 people 
telling 1 billion video game players what they should be playing, right? There is a story that everyone has to tell. And I think that by breaking that cost time and skills barriers of making games, we can empower people around the world so they can tell their stories, whether it's for education, awareness, or prompt proposals, whatever it is, right? And everything it is, can you tell your own story with your own language, in your own, with your own culture, with your own traditions, with your own avatars and backgrounds, like and your own music? Are you able to do that? So I feel like there's a very particular kind of person that that vision resonates with, where they're like, you know what? I don't have to be a gamer. And actually, interesting fact, mobile games, the average gamer in, in the US, mobile game player, is a 36-year-old woman, often playing something like Candy Crush in the Metro. We are a demographic that no game maker platform is speaking to. These low-code game maker platforms that have already been created for the game developers, no one's speaking to us, right? So we are the generation mm -hmm. of content creators. Snackable content is the way of the future. So the kind of people that I want on this ride is people who believe that fun, snackable, interactive content is powerful and that everyone should be able to make it. So if you're someone who wants like, who is like, hey, you know what? I'm going to put in $100, but then I'm, I'm going to, you know, connect Mariam with this Girl Scout program that I have, or I'm going to connect Mariam with this health initiative that we're doing. And that's where I'm, because I cannot clone myself but they, the, the people that are, that are our public investors will become our agents of change. These will become the ambassadors that are going to be like, you know what? Have you heard of Brashna? You can make a game at the dentist office next time they're there. Hey, make a dental hygiene game and put it in the lobby with the QR code so that when people are sitting in your waiting room, that's when you, that's when you make that happen. So it's like, I think it's that creativity that I'm looking for. And if you're that person, we'd love to have you on our journey. And with that, I think we have to end it because I don't think we can go anywhere else more better. <laughs> Thanks so much for being game. <laughs> I love that. Okay, this is going to be an extra long episode because that was an amazing conversation with Miriam. Yeah, I totally agree. She seems really, really cool. And I hope we can have her back down the road too to see where Breshna is at in a couple months. I'm excited to see first off like the carnival launch. Um, I'm excited to see what that does for their revenue streams. Um, and then I'm really excited about the like lightning on lightning with the like chat GPT for gaming. <laughs> Yeah, that, I thought that was really interesting. And that was actually one of the topics I wanted to talk about in the debrief, the sustainability of their business model, and how they're working on three different products at the same time. I know that's absolutely wild. I feel like you never hear that. Super rare to be able to do three products at one time. And really, I feel like capitalize on the current trends, like they've got gaming, sure, but then also like the no code, and then they've got the AI, and then they've got metaverse, like web three, I was like, I don't think that they can pull in any other like hot trends <laughs> into their business. But it is promising too, because if there are hot trends in the future, I'm confident that Breshna would try to capitalize on those too, which as an investor, I love that. Yes, to your point, it also gives them a lot of flexibility, right? And she was talking about how their monthly burn rate for their development and designer team is 40000 a month, which is just wild. But that kind of cost effectiveness really gives them a lot of room to 
iterate or to listen to customer feedback and then adjust so you have that you know elusive product market fit but i think really speaks to the strength of having uh her within here within the us but then also their development team um back in pakistan we are focused here within the new majority on impact but also impact means fair wages equality of, of access um and so if we're looking at as of june 2019 the average household income per capita within pakistan was $600 USD which is based on the average so that could be wildly skewed right by super high or super low incomes and pakistan does have um an income inequality issue just like we do within the US but regardless if if we do kind of a quick back of the napkin breakdown on math freshman is paying a team let's say of 25 $40,000 a month that's basically $1600 per month so that would be triple the average annual income of someone within Pakistan yeah so while we haven't seen any of our featured founders with that global business model it is common for companies to outsource to other countries in order to keep costs down but when you usually hear about those companies you think low wages or sweatshops i know companies like nike have received some backlash for outsourcing to different countries where yes they're keeping their costs down but they're also not paying fair wages but it seems like breshna is outsourcing and still paying fair wages which is a great sign for us yeah and i also think it's a great sign as an investor too it's a lot of work to to launch and run an equity crowdfunding campaign it is still a marketing campaign um but i think that mariam has seen like from the first campaign versus the second campaign like that it's a lot of work but it also can add a lot of value to the company and i'm so looking forward to seeing what that value does in the next couple of months and then hopefully we can have her on again to see where they're at oh my gosh that'll be so exciting Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you loved what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and share with another angel curious friend. And a big thank you to our investor circle members who support our podcast. And if you're not already a member, go to the newmajorityinvest.com to join today. See you there.